Okay, we are in Hebrews 13, and this is the section at the end of Hebrews that has some general exhortations, but they pick up on themes that we found earlier in Hebrews, as we will see as we discuss this. So it's certainly um, integrated. We just finished the section in chapter 12 that had an extended allusion to Sinai, or actually citations of the Sinai material, and the analogy between coming to Mount Sinai and coming to the heavenly Zion, and how much uh, greater this is. I had an interesting um, email. Brian, you got the same one. Remember that email? That person said, well, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, Brian and I got an email from someone who had heard, I don't know if they heard a seminar or how they found out about us, but they said, well, how am I supposed to really be still and know that He is God then? If, if you're going to take away all these things, contemplative prayer, centering prayer, um, uh, yoga, is, it all has to go because it's pagan, then he said, how, do, how am I supposed to know and how am I supposed to feel close to God? So I, I basically composed a response based on what we've learned in Hebrews in this Sunday school class. I wish every Christian could get a solid class on the book of Hebrews so they could understand it. And, and I told the guy, what you really need to do is study Hebrews. Let me give you some high points. And I used these verses where it says how we draw near to God. And in every case, the way we draw near to God is through our high priest, who is seated at the right hand of God, to whom we have access to the throne of grace and through the blood atonement. And what I think, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, uh, Brian and I, after we did some recording, is that um, it's really important that we understand the Scripture for what it says. And if you read the whole book of Hebrews, that very much is about drawing near to God. That's what's important. It doesn't even discuss whether you feel near to God or you don't feel near to God. This doesn't even, it's not even an issue. Because there are all kinds of people that feel near to God that are headed for hell. And there's a whole lot of people who are saved and on their way to heaven who don't feel near to God. See, our subjective state isn't what matters. If it, if it was an important issue, our subjective state, how close to God we feel, then it would be addressed in this book that's talking about the topic. What, and actually wanting to feel close to God is part of what was causing the apostasy. Because they feel closer to God when they have a high priest on earth. Because he can be seen. And they have a temple on earth because it can be seen. And that when they have blood of bulls and goats, because it can be seen. And this Jesus is up in heaven where he can't be seen. And his blood was shed once for all, so we can't literally see it. And we have to believe. So faith is the evidence of things not seen. And so I find myself having to keep trying to explain what we learned in Hebrews to people in emails. You know, we should write an article on this, or did I already? <laughs> you know what drives articles? is emails. If I get the same question five or six times, then I go, okay, I'll write the article, put a link on it, and I don't have to answer the email. <laughs> Yes. I think you could actually address this in a, even in a different uh, angle because people are looking for a feeling, a feeling sense that we all know. You step on your toe, it hurts, or you know, drop someone on your foot, it hurts. They feel that, they know that. There's a certain 
closeness they're looking for a feeling. And again, I think just to address it from that standpoint, coming in at that. Yeah, that would make a good essay just to deal with it. And I know this is true because I told the story before about this lady that left our church to go to a Messianic congregation, which was fine. People can go to church where they see fit. But she came back once to visit and told me something that I was very troubling. She says, I go to that other church because when I have this prayer shawl on, I feel close to God. And therein lies the problem. Uh, there's no object that you can go buy at the religious bookstore that's going to make you close to God. All right? And so if you think that it does, then you're dipping into paganism. Or, or, okay? Yes, Mike. Well, one of the things is you're talking about people trying to feel better, like it's a therapeutic thing. Like it's something they're going to experience. And it's more like a relationship between a person. Uh, like your father. Your father's off in a distant land, but he says, if you can get home here, I'll have a house built for you. Da-da-da-da-da. So you're trusting a person, not a, a technique or, or procedure or, or, you know. Today we want to think that we can take a pill and feel better. But that's not the, that's not the point. That's not the way you should look at the relationship. It's between you and a person. God is a person. And, you should compare it more with a relationship between you and, and, say, a person in your family, even though God is infinitely greater personality-wise. But it's, it's a personal relationship, not a way of doing things or a way to get better or a way to do, you know. <laughs> or a metaphy- it's a yeah, it's not just some sort of a metaphysical entity that, that you yeah. somehow tap into. Right. So... Uh, so that's what where we've come. Just a little summary there of chapters 1 through 12. Drawing near to God and not going back. The warning, five warnings against apostasy in Hebrews. And the, the cause of apostasy is a failure of faith. That is what's going on. And that's why we have an apostasy going on today is a massive failure of faith. Because faith is how we know that we're close to God. Faith alone. And when people start to think that it's not going to work, they bail out and they go look for something else. And I'm going to talk about that in my sermon um, so that we can have confidence in God and trust Him and not bail out when it looks tough. Okay, that's what faith is like. Now, let's do, let's start Hebrews 13, which is, um, now, ethical exhortations, not that there haven't been such exhortations throughout this book. The whole book is about how God wants us to come to Him. But now I'll give some more practical items. Hebrews 13.1 says, Let love of the brethren continue. Now, love of the brethren is one word in the Greek, Philadelphia. That's where our English city, uh, uh, Philadelphia, comes from. And it means brotherly love. And they had already demonstrated this because it said earlier that they were um, willingly willingly took up the confiscation of their goods. They they cared for prisoners at, at an earlier time. So brotherly loves love means this: Christians view each other as family members. All right, and so we are the family of God. 
And what Christians historically have done, if there's a valid church or a valid work of God, historically Christians will show the same sort of care and selflessness that you would befit a family that's functioning as it should. So if you're a father and your son is in trouble or your son needs discipline or your son needs teaching, you will be there, you will take action because of the nature of the relationship, unless you're a totally irresponsible father, right? And you will do so even when there's times your son doesn't deserve anybody to, to care for him. And the small children are cared for by parents because it's our nature of the relationship. Brothers and sisters are to have a relationship with one another that befits what a family is. Now, what this term being applied to Christians does, Philadelphia, means that you, the same sort of hope for uh, uh, loving, cherishing, caring relationships that would befit a, a natural family should be the characteristic of a Christian fellowship. And that when the pagans said, behold how they love one another, they were remark, remarking that this sort of thing existed. That they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And that the welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ is extremely important to us. And so much so that we'll take whatever actions necessary to preserve the relationship, to care for um the flock, and to be there for one another. Now, I believe that's true. It's true because of God's work of grace. And um, in my experience over the years, it's remarkable how true it is. And I have witnessed thousands of acts of Christian love that people show toward one another that maybe aren't done in public eye or they don't always get advertised because we don't do things to be advertised. We don't do alms to be seen of men. But I've seen Christians be there for one another. And that shows that God's doing a work of grace. Now, um, this, I, I think I'd want to also emphasize that this really is a work of grace. It, this isn't a program. Right? Well, what I think we do wrong in America and that may be all over the world, but I know America better than know any other place, is that we think that every command that God gives us in the Bible could be better instituted by somebody's program. All right? So if it tells us to do alms rather than just as Christians reach out to the poor people that we run across in the world and try to help people, we create a 501c3 almsgiving program, hire an executive director to raise the funds and give him a whole lot of money to run the thing, and, uh, to, and send out a mass mailing to everybody that we can think of about how they should be giving alms to the poor. And the best way to do it is to give us the money and then we'll send you back pictures of what we did with it. Now, maybe I'm not saying I'm the ultimate judge that no such thing should exist. But what I am saying is that's not what's in mind here. That's what we gravitate to. Because it's, you know, then I feel like this fancy superstar guy that's got this almsgiving program, when I send him my ten bucks, then I did it. See? I, I, I fulfilled that biblical command. But as a matter of fact, I didn't really do anything other than get rid of ten bucks. Uh, what changes our life is when we're actually showing love and kindness ourselves 
to real people on the scene of history. And it doesn't require a program. It requires a changed heart. And um, and that's how God works. Is when we do what we do, where we do, by God's grace, and it shows that lives have been changed. Now, the programs, if they exist, so, so be it. I, I don't think anything's ever going to change that. It's just our nature to create programs. But I, I'm, I'm suggesting that those programs are no substitute for a real changed life, real brotherly love, real almsgiving, and, you know, people that brush shoulders with one another and are there for one another. Yes. It's almost like, like, uh, you're, you're giving to this program and using that program as something that's interceding for you for something good that you've supposedly done instead of you doing it directly. Not unlike the Catholic Church and all this, unless it's, uh, uh, somebody else interceding besides Jesus Christ for you. You, know, you want to do, they want to do, want to do alms like it says here, you do it yourself. And, and, and because of your love in your heart, not have somebody else do it for you. Yeah, when I think it's also a stronger witness, not, again, I'm not categorically saying that it's a sin for somebody to have a 501c3 that does good deeds. I'm not claiming that, but I am saying that your own life will be more changed by actually doing something to help your neighbor whose wife is in the hospital. Or by seeing another Christian that you happen to know has a special need and to pray for them and to be there for them and help them through. That, that'll, that's where grace is, is visible and it's operating. These other things, okay, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice that we have the Red Cross and all these um, organizations, but I don't think that there's no way you can say that's what they were talking about here in Hebrews. They didn't have any such thing. All they had was the family of God and a willingness to be there for one another. And so the next, just to give you the context before we look up the cross-reference, the next verse says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So now we've got two levels here of this love. And it's also, by the way, one word, hospitality to strangers is philoxenia. Philoxenia. So we have Philadelphia and philoxenia. Uh, I think, isn't xenophobia a fear of foreigners? What's xenophobia? Fear of aliens. Fear, fear of aliens. Okay, so here instead of uh, xenophobia, I have philoxenia. Okay, so you are loving the alien or the stranger rather than fearing such a person. And so if you take these two commands together, or these two um, exhortations, you have to love the brethren, which is our first and primary responsibility, because that's the family. But then to show hospitality to strangers. Now here, according to the commentaries I read, this probably means Christians from other communities, and there's a guest-host relationship that's, that's envisioned. So uh, we aren't just becoming a little cloistered group that has a fear of anybody that's outside of us. Um, because that can often happen. It becomes so clannish that nobody can break into the group or we don't have any concern for anybody but each other. So, so you have to have a love for the brethren and then a hospitality to strangers who would come from somewhere else. Now, um, I'll, I'll, why don't I distribute some cross-references here. Um, these glasses are something else. John 15. I'm getting as bad as you, Linda. <laughs> I could tell she was liking the fact that I could. 
it's those progressive things. It's somewhere on the on this glass is the right place to look through. John fifteen seventeen for for Dean, and Romans twelve nine and ten for Denise and Linda. You have Galatians five thirteen, and Stephen um, one Peter three eight, Karen one Thessalonians four nine and ten, and Larry one Peter one one Peter one and twenty two. And Elizabeth, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Okay, when, uh, you have uh, John 15, 17. John 15, 17, red letters. <laughs> These things I command you that you love one another. That's pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> it's not hard to understand. Jesus said, These things I command you that you love one another. What does that look like? What would be uh, Christians loving one another? What is that like? Patient. Is you know, it, it, is it the ultimate expression of love that that what's on your heart is the well-being of the person you love, whatever that may be at the moment. Okay, if they have physical needs, then their well-being would be to see those men. If they have spiritual issues or concerns, their well-being would to see those met. If they have emotional issues, then their well-being would be what I can do to help. Okay. Sometimes we can't fix things, but love would be motivated to do so because we would really care. And it could be what somebody needs is to be corrected. And often that's where we fall down because it's a lot easier to tell somebody what they want to hear than to tell somebody what they don't want to hear. But we looked at that when we studied earlier in Hebrews 12, that whom the Father loves, he disciplines. So sometimes love is to tell somebody they're wrong and they're imperiling themselves by whatever it is that's wrong. Okay, so that's what love is like. Okay, um, Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be with it without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Okay, in honor, giving preference to one another is a phrase that sort of adds a little bit to our thought there. So, in honor, giving preference would be just the opposite of the what's in it for me, or somebody didn't notice me, or I didn't get the title I wanted, or what have you, but it would be an aversion to this status consciousness. All right? But give preference to one another. Yes? Kind of on the same line. So missionaries. We have missionaries that go out. And it seems like a lot of our missionaries today go out and start social things so that eventually they can share the gospel. Where Paul and Peter and they went out and they just strictly preached the gospel. But the brotherly love is talking about brotherly love for the ones in Christ. It seems like we've turned it around and we spend all kinds of money on social things. When we go, I mean, I went into missions for a little while and I worked at an orphanage and I didn't focus more on the needs of the kids instead of going and spreading the gospel. That, although I did, but it was, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I just somebody, I read an essay or an article or an email or something on that topic, and I can't remember what source, but it was discussing that. 
Yeah, right. It's not a bad thing to start a hospital. It's a good thing to do all of them. But if the entire Christian mission operation ends up just trying to make this world a better place to live in and not warn people of coming judgment, we've, we've missed it. Because then what's the difference between that and the social gospel? Now, I think that if we follow the biblical pattern, um, the apostles went out and they proclaimed the gospel. Peter, let's just start at the very first church. Peter, the day of Pentecost. He proclaims the truth of the gospel. God added to the church those who should be saved. Those he added to the church. Now they're together. Now they begin to share with one another and care for one another. Because now it's a church. But if you go and just start sharing and caring with the world without any concern that there would even ever be established a real church, that's not the mission. That's not our mission. Now, uh, I think we just did a... uh, we're still doing a series of radio shows. If you go to oneplace.com, we, uh, we're doing a series of shows about this purpose-driven thing. But I noticed this last week, somebody sent me a newspaper article from the UK, and it had in there, here's an interesting thing. When I started researching for my book, The Peace Plan, the P was plant churches. So then what that evokes in your mind is what we're talking about. You're going to plant a church, you send out a gospel preacher, and you begin to proclaim the gospel, and then when God saves people, then you gather them together in a fellowship, and, and you disciple them and nurture them, and that's how you have a church. So, so then, when I, what I was di- disputing about this, some people say, well, what's wrong with, yeah, obviously, it's, uh, this peace plan is evangelistic, because it says plant churches. But just before I went to publication, in, there was a speech given by Rick Warren in September 19 or 2005 in front of the religion news writer thing, and he changed the P to participating churches. It went from planning churches to participating churches. So then, and then he, at the same time, he was telling them that the man of peace doesn't have to be a Christian, and the key people that are going to launch this plan don't have to be Christians. Then, I got this newspaper thing sent to me by somebody from New Zealand just this last week. The P, according to this, and it was a secular article that interviewed, you know, or did their research for the thing. Now P is places of worship. So it doesn't even have to be Christian. It could be a Buddhist temple. It could be a mosque. And, and, and so now the focus is entirely on solving the world's problems because the rest of the thing is educate, um, you know, get rid of uh, diseases and hunger and, and so on and so forth. And the illiteracy, I think, is part of it. So <clears throat> what eventually happens, uh, and has happened in, in history in the modernist movement, is the church becomes a social institution, and we don't even have a gospel to preach that would ever start a church. Because people can't be converted when there's no gospel. And so what you end up doing instead is you create this desirable situation where that if people from the community come here, they will find health care, they will find literacy, they will find uh, help for orphans. And this is a desirable thing to do. Well, But it's not a church. And it's not the Christian mission. It's the giving of alms, which is fine. We should give alms. We're not going to get a church just by giving alms. And the other false idea is that if you do good things, then everybody's going to want to be a Christian. No. I've not seen Christianity in 
service at that point. Exactly. So, uh, well, it discounts the sin nature. Nobody really wants to be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit convicts them, right? You know, people want to come and have their needs met, but if they're going to become a Christian, they have to be convicted because Jesus said no one will come unto me unless the Father draws them. Okay, yes. Well, and I think this exhortation is a personal thing. It's something that everybody should do. We don't need, you know, it doesn't say anything about numbers there. It doesn't say anything about touching the whole community or providing uh, stuff uh, for everybody in the community. It, it's a personal thing. It's the opportunities you have in, in your life to be obedient, you should obey this. But it doesn't mean that you have to, like you say, build a program and touch a bunch of people and you know and, and work some kind of uh, you know movement on a on a community or anything like that. And I think we we make that jump very quickly from you know what's personal, what's me dealing with uh, Joe down the street, and what's me dealing with the rest of humanity. You know. And, it's so hard to get that idea of you know all people into the into this uh, out of my head because I, I think now I have to affect everybody. Right. I, I think there, there's maybe good motives. Let's say I want to help the most people I can possibly help, and I look for the best organization to give my money to that helps a lot of people. Maybe it's the Red Cross or whatever. That's fine. But this Philadelphia brotherly love is real people who really know each other. Well, Jesus provided bread for the 5,000, and, and, uh, but he didn't, you know, that wasn't the, the ultimate goal. Well, that's what they wanted, though. Remember? They wanted to make him king so they'd have a bread, free bread-making situation. <laughs> Who wants to have to plant wheat? That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's the what we gravitate to. Galatians 5.13. Get out of your light. Have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, do not use your liberty as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another. So liberty, and that's an interesting concept in Galatians. Ryan preached through Galatians, and uh, it was a very good study. But um, what the what was wrong in the with these false teachers in Galatia was that they didn't, they were taking away Christian liberty. They were commanding what God hasn't commanded. Alright? And so they were, they were claiming for themselves the right to draw the boundaries about what's God, what's sin and what isn't sin. That, that's very, very important concept, by the way. Is who draws the boundaries and what are they? Alright? And we are saying God draws the boundaries and they never change. They're, they're drawn once for all in the scripture. Now the Galatian leaders said, no, um, we, we're not going to accept the decision of the Jerusalem Council on this matter and what the apostles said on this matter. We're going to draw the boundaries and our boundaries are all Christians must be circumcised and must keep the food laws or whatever. They were the, the Judaizers. And Paul rebuked them and, and accused them of having a different gospel. So this thing of being a lawgiver is a very big temptation. So, so we're going to draw the boundaries. So when it talks about Christian liberty, it, it means that 
God draws the boundaries and we don't have liberty in what God has said. We have to submit to what God said. That's the authority of Scripture. But where God has allowed liberty, then we can make our own decisions. All right? And so according to, let's just take an example, according to the book of Galatians, a person does not need to be circumcised. And, and parents don't need to circumcise their male children. That was a Jewish law that was a part of the Old Covenant. It doesn't apply, according to Galatians. It's very clear. Now, if somebody has liberty, that means if they decide they want to have their male children circumcised, they're free to do so. But if they make a law and command everybody to do this under threat of being sinners against God, or they don't, then they become lawgivers and they have evil motives. And they've come, come to spy out Christian liberty. Now, the passage that you just read is saying, within this realm of liberty, in other words, anything that God hasn't said that would be a legitimate Christian liberty, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to make this an occasion for the flesh. Okay, I can go do anything I want. Uh, in other words, I have liberty, so I don't care about the body of Christ. I don't care about the welfare of my brother. I don't care about anybody. I'm just going to do what I want to do. No, that's not what liberty looks like. Yes, we're called a liberty, but do not use this as an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. In other words, uh, the, the moral obligation to show brotherly love is true. But how it's shown is something we have to work out in, in, in our decisions day by day by day. But if you're motivated to do that, within this realm of Christian liberty, you will find ways to express this brotherly love and not just go off and live in the flesh. That's what that verse says. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Oh, is that yours? No, you had 1 Peter 3, 8. I'm sorry. To sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. That was 1 Peter 3, 8. Now, these again are telling us what Christian character qualities are supposed to look like. Okay, the next verse we're going to read here is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel, to excel still more. Okay, so we urge you to excel still more in the love of the brethren. And, and so it says, you yourselves are taught by God to love the brothers. So this is one of the more important Christian duties, is to love God's people. Um, 1 Peter 1.22, did I give you that one? Uh, Larry? 1.22, yeah. And i got a comment after you comment on this. Uh says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth of for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay. Uh, 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls through, what is it, the knowledge of the truth? Or? Obedience. Obedience to the truth. Okay, having purified your souls through obedience to the truth, then you then because of that you show love, right? Amen. Yes. The comment I got is because you're going through a lot of these verses, and uh, if you look at MacArthur's one volume uh, commentary, he's got a chronicle of all the one another's, each other's verses on the negative ones and the minus ones. 
And uh, just for example here, according to what you're reading in Hebrews, First uh, Peter 4, 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer, uh, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> so God wants to change our heart. Now, why would people grumble? Well, because somebody put a duty on them and they don't like it. But but the passage that uh, Karin read said, you've been taught by God to love one another. And it says in Romans 3 that the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so a person who has been changed by God and the love of God it fills them through the Holy Spirit is going to love without grumbling because that's like somebody's putting a gun to their head. Say, so you, you go act loving to your brother. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> but but you want to do it because you actually really do love the brethren. And so it takes a work of grace to change us from the inside out so that this is a real thing and not just a contrived. Yeah, well, I mean, but, you know, you look at these verses back in answer to what uh, I think uh, the guy on the arrow was saying was that, uh, you know, about personal direct in the daily walk, you know, it's, by giving you these organizations and so forth, was personal involves me, you know, direct because it involves me in that process and daily walk is because it's during the course of life. It does something, yeah, it's just part of God's grace that changes us as we actively participate in showing love both to the brethren and to strangers. Okay, 1 John 4, 7 through 11, is that what you got? Yes. Um, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow, interesting. Wow, what a great passage. This was 1 John 4 that she read 7 through 11. But notice the interplay between God's action, which is prior. God, we love God because He first loved us. Now, how does, how does that work? Well, it says He sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means appeasing God's wrath against sin. So through the blood atonement, the, the, the wrath of God is satisfied and we have peace with God. And so he first loved us. He demonstrated his love through the cross, through this act of atonement. And he's brought us into a relationship with him. And he lets us know his love both objectively and subjectively, objectively through what Christ did, so we know that really is the love of God. See, um, the term love, as is applied agape in the Greek, can be misunderstood if we don't take the whole context. And that's what's so great about that first John passage, because it tells us the objective part of it. Some people, uh, I grew up in a liberal church, they very much emphasize love. That's all they emphasize. But they they would talk about love, and and I I would have to say that the people in that church practiced that. They were, you know, they were taught to be good Samaritans, and this was a farm community. They really were. They were good Samaritans, and they reached out. But what they lacked was the objective part. That being that he first loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. They didn't even have that. 
In other words, their loving God wouldn't ever send anybody to hell. So if God would never send anybody to hell, you don't need propitiation. Right? Because there's no wrath against sin to start with. And so it's sort of based on a, a, a rosy outlook that the, that man is basically good. The good Lord, good man, good everything. And if we just go out and be kind and loving to one another, the world's going to be a better place to live in and then people will know us as having been good Christians. That's what I grew up hearing and being taught in church. Now, if you read the Bible though, you get the balance of that. And that is, yes, we love. Yes, we are to be loving to one another and to strangers. But the reason we love is God first loved us and what His love looks like is propitiation for sins. And you can't take that part out without ending up with something that's not uniquely Christian. Because there are, I'm sure the Dalai Lama is a loving guy. I don't know. But I mean, he looks nice. <laughs> it doesn't look like he'd hurt anybody. But, but that's not uniquely Christian. Because he doesn't have propitiation for sins to offer. That's what's missing. Yes, in Elizabeth. Verse 21 in Jude, I think it's relevant also because it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And then it talks about others, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, getting even the garments to Yeah, snatching them out of the fire. Now, you're not going to snatch anybody out of the fire if you don't think there's any fire. And that's the whole problem today. They, they, they don't think there's a fire. They just think everybody's just basically good. So a, a, a practical working out of the love is actually getting out there and sharing the love of God, the gospel, non-believers, sharing the word of God with believers, growing um, mm-hmm. and, and, and sharing and equipping each other and... and um, Holding each other up. Amen. And correcting one another as needed and learning together as we open the Scripture together. Now, but see, that great expression of God's love, the, the Bible says we know love by this. 1 John 3.16, that He laid down His life for us. That we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, it starts with the cross. And, and it, it, yeah, it starts there. And if you don't start with the cross, then you don't have any way to really show love to the lost because you're not giving them the thing they need worse than anything else is the terms by which they can come to Christ. And and there's nothing more important than that. And so if we, if we tell people about Christ and the cross, that's how God's love is manifested to the world. And those who are willing to come on His terms by God's grace then become brothers. And then you have this fellowship of brotherly love. Because of the love that He first loved us. It doesn't originate from fallen man without a work of grace. I think another aspect of love is that uh, many times it takes suffering on the part of a person that is doing the loving. Uh, When Christ came to uh, earth and went to the cross, He suffered horribly because of God's love. And uh, not only uh, for the love of the people he was saved, but also for the love of the Father, because it was the Father's will 
And because Jesus loved the Father, he wanted to uh, fulfill that will. And I think, you know, we need to take that look, uh, that same approach. Because we love Christ, we want to obey his words. And it's going to involve suffering, not just in persecution from the world, but in suffering for each other and, you know, in the church. Yep, yep, it's, it, it, it definitely is that way. And there was a previous allusion to that in Hebrews 10 about how the, uh, they had been willing to suffer for one another. And actually, verse, thir- thir- or verse 3 is going to actually take up that topic, as a matter of fact, um, to suffer with those who are suffering. But it says in verse 2, let's move on now to verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. A little Bible quiz here. Who, who, who in the Bible entertained an angel unawares? Abraham. You got it right, Sam. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you cheated? Oh, you looked at the cross-reference. Uh, he, yeah, he cheated. But that's okay. Uh, the right answer is a good thing to get, even if you have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, but Abraham, uh, probably an illusion here. The most likely thing, this is an illusion to Genesis 18, 1 through 21, when these three men showed up to talk to Abraham, and so he put on out the hospitality like you're supposed to. And as they were having this fellowship meal, it turns out these three men are angels that were there to announce God's judgment in, 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 uh, on Sodom, right? And one of them ends up being the Lord himself. So there you go. Um, the word, as I said, for hospitality to strangers is philoxenia. And I was going to cite something from William Lane. I have done that today. Five, four, oh boy. Back to where I was. Sorry. He says this. The negative formulation, uh, the, the love of, see, do not neglect. Negative means, tells you don't neglect something. Do not neglect Hospitality of strangers reflects pastoral concern for the guest-host relationship and focuses attention on the role of the host that the members of the house church must be prepared to assume. The earliest Christian assemblies met in homes, which have provided a natural setting for the extension of hospitality to traveling brothers and sisters. Itinerant teachers, missionaries, emissaries, refugees from persecution relied upon a network of Christian homes for shelter and provisions. Commonly in Luke Acts, God's messengers receive food and lodging for those to whom they minister. Then he gives them a bunch of lists. Now, and, and that was basically the, the pattern in the world at the time of the New Testament writers, was that they didn't have the Radisson. Okay, so when you were traveling, and travel was a very dangerous thing, there were robbers. It was arduous. It was difficult to travel. And because of that, people generally wouldn't be traveling leisurely because it was not a pleasant thing to do. You were traveling because you had to. You had to get to family or you had something to do with whatever mission you were on, like Paul's travels. 
Okay, and you see the shipwrecks and everything he went through to travel. So because travel wasn't like going on vacation as we think of it, it was something that was necessary for some reason. It was part of their fabric of their society to, when somebody was traveling, host them when they came by, even if they were strangers. And because that's how people traveled. That's the way it worked. And, and when it's your turn, when you had to travel, there would be kind strangers to take you in and to feed you and send you on your way. So we see that pattern here. And so from what, if, if what William Lane says is true, that in, in the early years of the church, it was expected as people, and we can see that in Paul and Peter or whatever, as people as they would travel would be taken in by, in the homes of Christians who would happen to be in the region where they were traveling to. Okay? So that's what it was like to show hospitality to strangers. And you might even have an angel come with this. You never know. Uh, do you want to look up a verse? Uh, Matthew 25, actually just two verses. Uh, Matthew 25, 35, and 36. I always do that. Um, I was hungry, and you gave me uh, meat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Uh, Naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came unto me. Yeah, I was hungry, you took me in. I I was a stranger, and so on. Hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you visited me. And so on. So uh, that was it. The, this judgment description of Matthew 25. And they said, "Well, when did we do this?" And he said, "Whenever you did this to the least of these, my brethren." Now I'm of the opinion that Jesus' brothers, if, if you look earlier, in Matthew, are believers. Okay. Because he says, "Who who is my brother and my sisters?" Well, it was the ones who believe, the ones who do the will of God. Um. Got to go back. A, let's go back a little further. Uh, Bob, do you want to read uh, Leviticus 19.34 and Joanne, Romans 12.13 and Dick, Titus 1.8 and Gina, 1 Peter 4.9? Leviticus 19.34. Yeah, Leviticus 19.34. Joanne, do you have yours? Romans 12.13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Well, there's the same thing in the ethical exhortation. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We had a lot of that when I was a kid on the farm growing up. That was literally the way people were. And um, the one that I always remember when we ran into strangers, it was because they get stuck. Um, our farm, they I evidently to save money, this was in the 50s and 60s, but they paved gravel, they, they put gravel on the road out to our farm to the end of our grove, and then it was a dirt road. They, they had never improved it. It was just dirt. And in the spring, it was just pure mud. But then when they, but in the winter, they would only, the snowplow would only go to the end of our grove and then turn around. Okay? Well, what would happen? Somebody's going 40, 50 miles an hour down our gravel road in the winter and they get to the end of the grove and boom! <laughs> the car would go right into a snowdrift, usually taller than the car, literally. And then they'd, they'd, they'd dig yourself out of the car and they'd come wandering back to our farm because we were the closest ones. 
And then, uh, and it'd be in the middle of winter, and they'd say, "Well, we got stuck. Can you help us?" So every time, my mom would bring whoever's in the car. They'd bring them into the kitchen, and she'd be making a meal or whatever they needed. And my dad would go get the tractor in his in a big chain and take it out there and pull their car out, and then he'd get the car all cleaned up, and then we'd sit and talk with them. Just that my dad, I it used to embarrass me because I thought. Gee, Dad, maybe these people don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Everybody he ever saw was like his long-lost best friend because he just loved people so much. And so then these people, he'd want to know where they're from and why they were traveling and what their family's like. And that's how we met strangers was when they get stuck. And boy, they get stuck all the time out there. The county didn't even, was too cheap to even put a sign up to say that this road is... Eventually, by the late 60s, they actually got a sign. <laughs> I guess they were trying to save money in, in uh, Bryan County. Okay, um, Leviticus 19.34. Actually, I'm going to start with 33. It says, Do not take advantage of foreigners who will live among you in your land. Treat them like native Israelites and live them and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Yeah, that's a very good uh, uh, reference because it said don't uh, take advantage of foreigners because remember you used to be a foreigner in Egypt. And it was a command to show hospitality and to show love to people. It's amazing how people in our sin natures, that the human race is prejudiced in its sin nature. And it's always been that way and it's that way everywhere. Um, and you can go anywhere in the world where there's anybody that's tribal or that they look different or they're from a different anything, and you will see people hating one another and shooting one another and warring with one another and rejecting one another and being prejudiced against one another for whatever reason they can figure out, even when we wouldn't even see a difference. And that's the sin nature, and, and which is a, a true in the Old Testament. So we had there an ethical thing that the, God's people aren't allowed to be that way. You know, and we're not supposed to be that way. Yes? There's an interesting application of that. With, with, uh, when you read the New Testament, there's this really beautiful theme of, of we have this new exodus under a new Passover lamb now. And uh, the Passover lamb is Jesus. And the exodus is from slavery for, to sin to eternal life. And if we can take the implication application there that Remember, as, as we pass from, from death to life, we must not hate those who haven't done that yet because slaves in the same way, and we haven't to remember that we were in that position once before. Therefore, treat those who are not, who are foreigners or not members of the kingdom of God with love. Very good application. That's good, Ryan. <laughs> Absolutely, because we were once lost and blinded by sin. And we can be very disgusted with people that are lost, but you don't know who God's going to convert, and we were once in that same condition. That was his application. It's a good one. It's a valid one. It follows from the text hermeneutically. So, Well, the hermeneutics teacher should get it right, shouldn't he? <laughs> okay, Dick, you had which one here? Uh, Titus 1.8? Start at seven. <laughs> For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So one of the requirements for elders was to be hospitable, right? Um, so I remember once I was at a, a camp up north in the 70s, and there's this guy who was doing a whole series at the camp on relationships and how important they were. That was his topic. But the thing that was just thinking about when people don't follow what you're saying there, he was he, all this stuff and well, it was wasn't that good. It was sort of half psychobabble on some Bible. But when he get done with this thing about relationships, he'd go back up to his room that he had because he was the camp speaker, close the door, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> Leave me alone. And he'd make them bring meals to him, and he wouldn't have anything. He wouldn't have anything to do with anybody because he was like in some status out there on his own, and and I thought it doesn't ring true that you think relationships are important and you're not even willing to, ha- to rub shoulders with us peons that come to this conference. Uh, and so I think that passage that Dick read is sort of to guard against that thing where leadership some sort, sort of takes a uh, aura of um, in, inaccessibility. Okay. Then, um, i got a story about that. John MacArthur was in town. Right, and of course, because he's so well known, everybody would love a chance to talk to him, including me, frankly. And he was going to go into the KKMS studio to do some live radio before that time he spoke when he was here for KKMS. And I talked to Jesse and I were talking, uh, and because she was going to be at the studio, she was being trained about how to be a studio engineer so she could solve problems for Jan if they arise, uh, and the engineer wasn't there or wasn't able to solve them. Well, she thought, well, I'd love to talk to John MacArthur, but you know, I, I bet you he just, everybody wants to talk to John MacArthur. So she decided, I'm just going to sit here and keep my mouth shut and not bug him. So she, what happened was John MacArthur comes into KKMS, and here's all the suits, everybody all dressed up, the, you know, the dignitaries and everybody that runs the radio station, and they all, you know, I... I and Jesse's sitting over there in the corner keeping her mouth shut. And John MacArthur said, okay, and he left those guys, went over. He says to Jessica, I'm John MacArthur. Why are you sitting in the corner? <laughs> and, and he started telling her a story about how he met his wife. And asked, he asked, why are you here? Well, I work for Jan Markell, and my dad is a pastor. And, and, he, and he spent 15 minutes talking to Jessica, leaving behind all the fancy suited people. And asking her uh, about herself and telling a story to her. And she called me on the cell phone after then they went in to, to, to do the radio show. And she goes, what a nice man. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, that's what a leadership looks like, is that he would rather talk to the person of no notoriety. So... I thought that said something about a guy that really is from God, that really believes what he teaches. Okay, uh, Gina, you had one uh, verse. One, what was it? Uh, one Peter four nine. Um, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Well, it says it a lot of times, so I guess we're supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, we read how many different verses all said the same things. That usually gives us a clue that that's what God said. Now. Um, by the way, I'll, I'll be saying a little more about this upstairs. We closed on this building. We have sold this building. And I will be making a statement 
uh, about that a little bit. And I also, but I'm going to integrate something about that into my sermon. And this will be, it's not usual for me to do that, but I, there's such a perfect application for what our text in Genesis is that I, I, I will be making kind of a personal story about Providence and how you learn after the fact through providence. That's what. I, and so I will say more then, and give you. We'll be giving you some details. We have uh, fellowship time for a half hour, and then we meet upstairs.